1: Russian television schedules were hacked to display anti-war messages. A phishing campaign distributes Jester Steeler in Ukraine. The European Council formally attributes the cyber attack on Viasat. Costa Rica declares a state of emergency as Conti ransomware cripples government sites vc rat and the c to c markets the gang behind our evil does indeed seem to be back more joker infested apps are found in google play ben yellen looks at digital privacy concerns in the aftermath of the potential overturn of roe versus wade our guest is nick adams from differential ventures with a vc's perspective on what will drive continued growth in cybersecurity. and spain's spyware scandal takes down an intelligence chief cyberwire studios at data tribe i'm dave bittner with your cyberwire summary for tuesday may 10th 2022 we begin with a quick note on russia's hybrid war against ukraine for useful context more analysts see a growing possibility of outright Russian military defeat, even with Russia's war aims having contracted to the conquest of the Donbass. It's worth remembering that only 75 days ago, Moscow was demanding demilitarization and denazification, effectively unconditional surrender, as a precondition for negotiations with Kyiv. The post-mortems on President Putin's Victory Day speech agree that it suggested a continuation of current war policy, a reluctance to ask more sacrifice from Russians, and an insistence on NATO's ultimate responsibility for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The big parade itself received indifferent reviews as a spectacle of menace, especially from the more gung-ho British tabloids. Like the sun, which packed as much derision as we think it humanly possible to achieve in its screamer headline, Vlad-tastrophe! Inside Putin's damp squib victory day parade from tyrant's feeble speech and hacked live feed to slimmed-down military. All that's missing is the cover version of Sweet Caroline. Hackreed reports that yesterday, as the big victory parade was about to begin in Moscow, Russian television schedules were disrupted to display an anti-war message. The message said, On your hands is the blood of thousands of Ukrainians and their hundreds of murdered children. TV and the authorities are lying. No to war. Children's television programs flashed shorter messages. No to war and the authorities lie. The messaging was fairly widespread. Most major Russian TV outlets were affected. There's no attribution yet. It could be hacktivism, it could be Ukraine's IT army, or it could be a nation-state operation. CERT UA warns that a social engineering campaign distributing jester-stealer malware is in progress. The fish bait used to induce Ukrainian targets to bite is a warning of a chemical attack. The fish hook is an XLS document with a malicious macro. Bank Info Security points out that one unusual feature of Jester Steeler is that it uses a telegram channel as opposed to more conventional command and control infrastructure to deliver the information it collects. The malware itself is a commodity product freely traded in the criminal to criminal market. Again, there’s no attribution yet. It could be state-directed or it could simply be criminals seeking to profit from the unsettled state of a country under attack by a bigger neighbor. The European Council today formally attributed the February 24th cyber attack against Viasat's KASAT network to Russia. The attribution was laced with condemnation. Interference with the KASAT network was one of the few Russian cyber operations of the war to first enjoy a measure of success. It was also, as the EU communique notes, one of the attacks that spilled over to nations other than Ukraine. The attack's timing suggests it was intended to serve as preparation for Russia's invasion. Reuters reports in an exclusive that the U.S. administration is increasing its scrutiny of Kaspersky amid concerns that the security firm's widely used tools, already restricted from use within the U.S. government, could be exploited by Russia for intelligence and cyber operations during Russia's war against Ukraine, The Departments of Justice and Commerce are said to be considering using national security measures put in place during the previous administration against the Russian software company. Kaspersky has long denied that it's susceptible to the kind of pressure from Moscow that Western governments have feared. Those skeptical of the company point to an obvious reading of Russian domestic law that requires companies to cooperate with the government in precisely the ways that have aroused concern. Neither Kaspersky nor the U.S. Departments of Justice or the Treasury replied to Reuters' requests for comment. President Rodrigo Chavez of Costa Rica has declared a state of emergency as the government works to recover from a Conti ransomware attack. According to Bleeping Computer, Conti claims to have hit and taken data from the Costa Rican Finance Ministry, the Ministry of Labor and Social Security, and the Social Development and Family Allowances Fund. Other agencies whose operations are reported to have been affected include the Administrative Board of the Electrical Service of the province of Cartago, the Ministry of Science, Innovation, Technology, and Telecommunications, the Ministry of Labor and Social Security, the Social Development and Family Allowances Fund, as well as a variety of other government agencies. Conti is a privateering gang that says it hacks in the Russian interest as well as its own but this particular campaign seems primarily financially motivated. BlackBerry has released a report on DC Rat, also known as Dark Crystal Rat, a discount commodity malware tool offered in Russophone criminal-to-criminal markets. It is, according to BlackBerry's researchers, the work of a lone actor, offering a surprisingly effective homemade tool for opening back doors on a budget. It can be had for as little as six bucks, and even less when it's on special. Why it's so inexpensive is unclear. BlackBerry speculates that the developer may be more interested now in market share than immediate profit, or perhaps the work is more hobby than livelihood. In any case, DC Rat is under active development and still on offer. Dirt cheap. The gang behind R-Evil is likely to be back. That's SecureWorks' conclusion. Their researchers have found that samples of R-Evil obtained since the Gold Southfield Group resumed operation last month strongly suggest access to the ransomware's source code. The malware also seems to be under active development. The Hacker News reports that more trojanized apps have been found in the Google Play Store, where they're seeking to spread to compromised Android devices. Joker has been used in apparently legitimate apps for billing and SMS fraud, while also performing a number of actions of a malicious hacker's choice, such as stealing text messages, contact lists, and device information. And finally, the long-running spyware scandal in Spain has taken down one of that country's senior intelligence officials. The Washington Post reports that Paz Esteban is to be relieved as the director of the National Intelligence Center, familiarly known by the acronym CNI. The scandal is twofold, with both an intelligence and counterintelligence aspect. On the intelligence side, CNI has been criticized for its role in installing spyware in the devices of Catalan separatists. On the counterintelligence side, similar spyware was found in senior government officials' phones including those used by Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, Interior Minister Fernando Grande Marlaska, and Defense Minister Margarita Robles. That spyware, NSO Group's Pegasus tool, had been placed there by an unknown party, probably foreign. The first offense was illicit surveillance. The second offense was, why did it take CNI a year to realize that Some parties unknown had access to senior officials' phones. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. 2021 saw record levels of venture capital investment in cybersecurity, with Crunchbase reporting over $20 billion poured into the sector globally. We are well into 2022, of course, and for a reality check on VC activity, I checked in with Nick Adams, founding partner at Differential Ventures, a seed-stage VC fund that invests in B2B data-oriented technology.
0: Things are definitely cooling down, especially at the later stage of venture capital, as as capital markets come down. Um, certainly, private market valuations are are quick to follow at the late stage of venture. Definitely seeing that in uh, certain sectors like e-commerce and and fintech. At the earlier stages, it's not quite there yet. You know, we invested the seed and in, in Series A stage. Um, there's definitely been a cool down in activity, um, but valuations are still relatively high. But in the cyber world, things are definitely marching on uh, at a pretty steady pace. And there's probably a few drivers of that, um, just in terms of industry adoption uh, historically. Uh, Mm. So catching up a bit, but also just some healthier market dynamics, uh, again, in terms of the available capital still uh, in the venture ecosystem uh, and the pending challenges uh, that remain just in the overall cybersecurity ecosystem uh, bode pretty well for cyber to continue on at a, at a stronger pace uh, relative to some other industries.
1: Is it fair to say that there's an adequate level of, of funding available for those who are out there trying to make their mark in cyber?
0: There definitely is, no question. The good thing about venture capital, uh, good or bad thing about venture capital, depending on your perspective, is that um, the capital is pretty well committed. So it's, it's still out there for VC funds. So... Um, you know, angel investors, family offices, some corporates may pull back. But VC funds, for the most part, um, their capital is pretty pred- predictable. And frankly, I think a lot of money has been sitting on the sidelines waiting for a bit of a market correction to pour into some of the more favorable spaces at, at better valuations than we've seen over over the last few years. So I think there's plenty of, of money out there, um, and especially for some of these sectors that are still growing pretty drastically in terms of their their actual business need. Um, in, in the enterprise and, and consumer markets. Are there
1: any common mistakes that you see, any pitfalls that uh, that people experience regularly?
0: You know, I think one of the areas that we've seen from a technology perspective, particularly with our thesis uh, around data, is kind of the unfulfilled promise of, of data-driven solutions and cybersecurity. It really hasn't come to fruition given the number of challenges just around data sets and the possibility for actually creating more cybersecurity risk um, with AI-oriented security solutions. So uh, I'd be careful about uh, how you position and and go about building uh, any cybersecurity solution that promises to be AI-oriented, machine learning-oriented, because there are still a lot of complex challenges that haven't come to fruition around just the overall data set and the risks that can come from how how you train an algorithm down the road.
1: What is your advice for the folks who are out there looking for funding? What sort of words of wisdom do you have for them?
0: Stay with it. Uh, I would definitely, cybersecurity is a unique uh, beast in a lot of ways in that historically, um, most funds that are going to be comfortable in this space investing at the seed or pre-seed stage are, have more of a technical background. Um, so certainly seek out those VC funds that understand um, cybersecurity technology more broadly, uh, more in-depth, I should say. If you're later stage at the growth phase of of an organization, so you're going out for Series A and Series B, there's always growth stage capital out there. Historically, Series A and beyond capital, and cybersecurity in particular, has been pretty heavily concentrated for some of the more focused and larger funds like Excel or or NEA. But I think at the pre-seed and and seed stage, there are some more technical funds um, uh, like ours that are interested in looking at technology and the team behind it that can build great solutions, maybe in advance of a whole lot of product market fit uh, proof points. Uh, so I'd definitely look for, for funds that know understand technology um, that have good connections into go-to-market strategy in the cybersecurity world. Again, a space that has largely worked on partnerships uh, with a lot of the larger OEMs and, and resellers in this space, um, but increasingly seeing CISOs um, you know, branching out and looking for more innovative early stage technology. Uh, on their own. Uh, so I do think there's uh, an opportunity to sell more directly before embarking on a uh, well-informed uh, partnership strategy in this space as well.
1: That's Nick Adams, founding partner at Differential Ventures. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? That's vanta.com/slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. But more importantly than that, he is my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. You know, uh, you and I have talked about uh, some of the, uh, you know, digital um, exhaust that we leave when we're using our mobile devices mm-hmm. and the ability for folks to de-anonymize that and track us uh, and, and the policy implications of that. Um, you know, in the news right now is uh, this very uh, important and big story about the uh, leak of a Supreme Court draft. Uh, potentially overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, And this has created a a strong response from a lot of folks on the privacy side of things, worried that uh, if someone were to get an abortion, that perhaps their phone would know that they did that, even if they wanted to keep that private. Right. So this is less of
2: an issue about the substance, underlying substance of whether you believe in uh, the right to choose or not. Right. This is a story about data collection. And a lot of privacy and civil liberties advocates are worried that in states where abortion is going to be criminalized, there's going to be an effort to obtain very private and personal data from people in order to prosecute individuals for obtaining illegal abortions. Hmm. It looks like with this Dobbs uh, decision, that's going to come down probably in June, uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Abortion will be left up to the states. Mm -hmm. And states can criminalize abortion, uh, at least according to the draft of this decision, uh, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And depending on the individual state, there are going to be some enforcement mechanisms in uh, trying to figure out people who have had abortions or are planning on getting abortions for the purposes of pro- uh, criminal prosecutions. So there are a few very specific concerns about uh, data collection related to abortions. Yeah, The first is location data. Uh, so... There's going to be a movement in states that outlaw abortions for individuals to go to other states to obtain abortions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So far, there aren't laws on the books restricting people from this type of interstate travel, but there very well could be. Uh, And there's a lot of information about our whereabouts that's stored on our devices, whether it's powering Google Maps or any other Maps application or many other services. Uh, and the fine print in uh, those EULAs that none of us read allow <laughs> companies to sell that information to other companies. Right. Those companies can make that information available to advertisers or whoever wants to pay for it. And maybe a state law enforcement agency or a local law enforcement agency would want to pay for that data to identify women Who have traveled across state lines to obtain an abortion? Right. Of course, they say all the companies will say all of this data is anonymized, but we've talked a million times about how you can really develop a dossier on an individual person. Yeah. If If, their device is always at the same address at night and always at the same address during the day, you can pretty easily figure out uh, who that person is. Huh. Second concern is about search and chat histories. Uh, So. Companies like Google keep records of your Google Chats. If you're having a conversation uh, in one of these applications about getting an abortion, uh, prosecutors could use these types of searches as evidence in a criminal trial. And this isn't entirely theoretical. Uh, In 2017, prosecutors used internet searches in the state of Mississippi uh, to find out whether somebody was searching for abortion drugs. So they put that in their search bar. Uh, that was evidence that was obtainable with a subpoena, and uh, prosecutors used that data as evidence of a uh, fetal homicide in the state of Mississippi. So this is Hmm. definitely something that does happen. I think the creepiest in terms of uh, invasions of privacy are these so-called re- reproductive health apps, mm-hmm. which largely track menstrual cycles.
1: Right. I've seen a lot of uh, call on on social media of people saying, um, you know, delete your period tracking apps.
2: Yeah. I honestly think that would be a wise move if this is something that you're concerned about. Hmm. There have been a couple of these applications who have already gotten pushback for playing fast and loose with this data. One of these companies, Ovia, uh, was sharing aggregate data on some of their users' family planning with their employers. That happened in 2019. Uh, The FTC had to settle with an app, Flow. Mm -hmm. Uh, That app promised to keep users' data private, but then shared it with marketing firms, including Facebook and Google. You know, some people would say, how is this not covered by HIPAA? It is private health information. Well, these applications don't count as covered entities under HIPAA. Right. So they are not obligated to follow the terms of that law. So if you have that application uh, downloaded, you use it, and you've accepted the terms and conditions, state prosecutors in some of these states that are going to outlaw abortion might use the, the data on these applications as evidence in a criminal trial. Uh, based on whether you've missed certain menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, This sounds very 1984. It it is. Uh, I think this is why it's uh, of such great concern. So I think regardless of how you feel on the underlying policy issue here, I think this is about an invasion of digital privacy uh, for companies and law enforcement agencies collecting information that's just extremely personal. Yeah. Uh, and all of this is is legal and is a practice that's relatively common.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's a really interesting point because uh, you know the the law enforcement in the states who are we presume going to outlaw abortion would say, well, we're just making use of the tools that are available to us to enforce the laws that are on our books and that is our responsibility to do so. So to me what this part of what this sort of shines a light on is that everyone needs to take a personal responsibility for their own digital privacy that uh you you can't you can't just rely on regulation to if this is something that's important to you to potentially keep you safe from the type of surveillance that uh, we're going to see out there, right? Right. I mean, I think not just in this area, but in every other area,
2: people have to be cognizant of the information they're storing on their personal devices and recognize how easy it is for that data to get into the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. Whether that's data brokers who are going to exploit your personal information to try to sell you stuff, or that's the government uh, who's going to use some of the most intimate data imaginable to prosecute you under these new state laws, I think everybody has to take stock of exactly what they're sharing on these devices and on these applications. I mean, I think the legal system is not going to do it for us. There are very few uh, protections against this type of mass data collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it really is up to individuals. I think that's a message that privacy advocates uh, are trying to get out there that it is incumbent upon upon all of us uh, to make those decisions for ourselves and for our loved ones.
1: All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfand, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.